How I hate being away from this pulpit. And I do. The last three weeks I haven't been able to, uh, or the last two weeks I haven't been able to share God's word with you. I am blessed to know that there are men who can, can share God's word and we've heard good reports of that sharing. So, um, Eddie's another one who can share God's word with us this morning and I'm looking forward to hearing the message. So, Brother Eddie, would you come forward and uh, give us what God's given you? Thanks, mate. Good morning. That was like an explosion. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Don't want to murmur just in case you know you, you miss the point. Is this on? This little. It's on. It's on. Don't turn it around. Oh, don't turn it around. Oh, okay. Don't touch the mic. Sorry. Sorry. Last time I was here giving a message, I lost all my pages. So today I got this little folder which was mine, but my daughter adopted it. So it's got the little Tweety Bird on. But anyway, it certainly helps. Um, Alan always mentions something when he gets up here on the pulpit and he always says it's a privilege to bring God's word and, and nothing short of that. It's always a privilege to bring God's word. And uh, it's a blessing to be standing here. So um, I pray that this morning's message will bless you. Um, suffering seems to be a real issue in the world in more ways than one. It's one of those things that we can't seem to get away from. The world's filled with it in one particular way or another. And the message today is going to be based a little bit on that. But it's also something that a lot of people give an excuse to move away from God. We will notice something with respect to suffering. And it's something that's actually brought out by Scripture. But it's also something that we see in the real world. Suffering usually has one of two effects. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It'll either draw people to God or it'll push people away from God. People usually ask the question about suffering, saying, if God was real, then there wouldn't be all this suffering. They ask the same question about evil. Not recognising something really interesting about that, in that the very question about suffering, the very, the very point about evil, when they say something like, if God was real, there wouldn't be evil in the world. Or if God was true, why does he let bad things happen? Now think about that just for a second. Think about that very, very example just for a second. What is that person who says that they deny God actually recognising about God? You know, we're often Christians for a long time before we realise the sovereignty of God. God is actually sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's in perfect control of this universe and everything that happens within this universe. We, as Christians, even deny that very fact. Yet, here's a non-Christian that within the very point of suffering is acknowledging that attribute of God. I hope that wasn't too far over your head. I just wanted to make sure that you understood that if a person sits there and says, if there is a God, why does he let bad things happen? There's a recognition that if there was a God, he'd have to be powerful enough to not let bad things happen. Is that, you're with me so far? So all of a sudden, within an unbeliever's heart, there's a recognition of a particular attribute. Another attribute that they also recognise, if there is a God, why does he have to be good? Isn't that interesting? They're recognising again within that very point an attribute of God that he has. If there is a God, why does let bad things happen? 
Obviously, he must be a good God to not want bad things to happen. You see where I'm going with this? As Christians, we understand it. Why is it that a non-Christian who says they don't believe in God, how do they understand it? Where do they get that from? What about his omniscience? He's all-knowing. Well, if there was a God, he'd have to know that there was evil. He'd have to recognise that there is evil. He has to be all-knowing. They're already recognising that within that very statement. Not only does he have to be all-knowing, he has to be everywhere at the same time. You can't just have evil over here and he misses the evil over there. The person that's complaining about God over here is complaining about God over there as well. You recognise that? All of a sudden, within that one phrase, we find four attributes of God that Christians have to study the Bible to discover. Isn't that amazing? You know, there's scholars out there, Christian scholars, that actually deny that God is all-knowing. It's a concept called open theology. It's very interesting. They think that God's learning as time goes on. And yet here we have non-Christians recognising these attributes within the very statement that, you know, we're often stuck with. Ah, if there's a real God, why does he let bad things happen? And all of a sudden the Christian mumbles and goes, oh yeah, that's a really good point, don't understand that one. But within that very question is the fact that this person already recognises that God exists. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that men have no excuse. The Bible teaches that they know God within their heart. Jesus Christ is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. So we know that within every man there is no excuse. They have an ability to know God. That was by way of introduction. So it's my desire this morning to open the scriptures to you. But it be both an encouragement and a challenge and also to help create in you a desire to share the gospel. A hunger for the words of God that you may indeed grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To faithfully bring this good news of salvation to all. That Christ died for their sins and should they receive it they may have everlasting life. For God commands all men to believe the gospel and be saved. There's four points that I want to be bringing out. I'm only going to be having time to bring out three of them. If you open your scriptures just for a moment to Romans chapter 8. And you're going to want to keep your finger there for as long as possible. We'll go through a little bit of scripture, but we're always going to be coming back to that particular portion of scripture. Romans chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 18. And verse 18 is the one that we're looking to bring out as much as we can this morning. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let's pray. Father, our heart today is to seriously seek your word, to seek the wonderful truth of your word, that we may indeed be challenged that we may be changed, that we may be able to have that fervency to share the gospel, dear Lord, to bring this powerful news of salvation to all men and to all ends of the earth, that we would have the courage to do so and not shake in our faith whatsoever. Help us recognise, dear God, what these sufferings are. Help us also acknowledge, dear Lord, that they are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Father, open our hearts, our lives, our minds, 
and our eyes to see the wonderful truth of your words. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For I reckon... You've heard it said a few times before that people tell you what the word reckon means, or what they reckon the word reckon means. What I want you to do is I want to just have a look at this particular word. This is going to be, I'm only going to spend a few minutes on this. We're going to be talking more about the sufferings and we're going to be trying to bring out exactly what that means. But just for a second, let's think about this word reckon. The reason that I want to focus on it, because at the very, very beginning of this verse, Paul is using that as a basis for what is to follow. He says, For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory, uh, can be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And this is really important because later on he brings out that hope, incredible hope that we have in the future to look forward to. So the word reckon is important for us to understand if that's either opinion, as we commonly use it today, or if it's actually a statement based on a full accounting of everything that's gone before. And everything that Paul understands. Is that what that means? Or is it an opinion, which is what we think of today? What I want to show you is how you can find this out for yourself. You don't have to just believe what someone standing here is saying. That you can actually go through the scriptures to find out what that actually means. A few years ago I went to the snow with a mate of mine, Manny. We had a great time. We were on the top of the mountain. And when we got down around about halfway, he diverted off. And he was watching these guys go off a jump. You know, and um, I came down, I snowboarded down to him and I sat down next to him and we're watching these guys go off this jump. You know, it was only a small jump, it wasn't a big jump. On the other side of the jump was a, was a road, and the road was all iced over. So you couldn't really tell it was a road until you landed on it. But we're sitting there watching, you know, and these guys are going over and they're landing these jumps perfectly, you know. Manny looked over to me and after the last guy went over and he looks over and he goes to me, you know what? I reckon you could do that. <laughs> well, at this point, a wise man would be asking the same question we we're asking of this text. Did Manny carefully weigh up all the evidence? Was it a deduction and an accounting based on everything that he had seen of my skill on a snowboard, my style, my experience? Or was it based on his own opinion? Perhaps sarcastic opinion. Well, I stood up on my board, feathers raised, chest out. Yeah, I can do that. See, I was reckoning that Manny's reckon was based on absolute reckoning. That was my reckoning. Well, got on the board, went down the mountain, went off the jump. Unfortunately, my chest hit the ground well before my feet. Lying there heavily winded and unable to breathe, I looked up and I saw Manny standing over me, also unable to breathe, but for a far different reason. I reckoned wrong, okay? His reckoning was based on opinion. It wasn't based on carefully accounting all the evidence available for us. So it's really important, you can see by that particular example, that you interpret the scriptures correctly. Okay, otherwise it can, it can hurt. Okay, so this is really important. And the reason why it's important, because if you've got the wrong interpretation, you've got the wrong doctrine. 
And if you've got the wrong doctrine, you've got the wrong understanding. And if you've got the wrong understanding, you're going to have the wrong living. So let's have a look at this. He says, For I reckon, for I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In the context of the verse and going forward, we can see that Paul is using this word to determine a reason for the hope. Have a look down, verse 24 and 25. He says, For we are saved by hope, and by, and, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what hath he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So there's a reason that he's coming to this conclusion. There's a reason for this hope. So Paul says, for I reckon. Have a look at what goes before then. It's important to understand that for usually refers to everything that's gone before it. So let's have a look at what's gone before it. Have a look at verse 14. He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. What I want you to see is have a look at how that's actually laying itself out. He says, for the, the Spirit itself beareth witness. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Do you see how he's doing that? He's bringing one logical point. He's saying, if that's true, this is true. If that's true, this is true. If that's true, this is true. He finishes off with, therefore, I reckon the sufferings of this present time cannot be compared. And are worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Another way of doing this, this particular word shows up 32 times in the Bible. 32 times we have reckon or reckoned. 25 times in the Old Testament, 7 times in the New Testament. Five of those 7 times it's found right here in the book of Romans. But there's a first place that it actually turns up. If you turn your Bible to Leviticus, book of Leviticus, we want chapter 25. Chapter 25 of Leviticus is the institution of the Sabbaths of the land and the Jubilee. It's about right accounting of what is done during this time and remembering that the Jubilee is when the possession of the land returns to the people. Okay, the Jubilee is that 50-year period or after the 49th year, it turns over. It's after the seven sevens, the Sabbaths of the land. Go to verse, uh, we'll just go verse 50 to 52. And it says, He shall reckon with him that brought him from the year that he was sold to him unto the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall be according to the number of years. According to the time of an hired servant shall it be with him. If there be yet many years behind, according unto them, he shall give again the price of his redemption out of the money that he was bought for. This is speaking of a particular person that is given his life as a bond servant. Okay? During the time of the Jubilee, all slaves, all bondservants are also set free, as well as the land returned back to their original owners. And then he says in 52, And if there remain but few years unto the year of Jubilee, then he shall count with him, and accordingly, according unto his years shall 
shall be given him again the price of his redemption. It's about working out the total price of the redemption. If there's a long time before the Jubilee, then he's worth more. If there's a short time before the Jubilee when he's going to be set free, he's worth less. It's a proper accounting. Okay, so we can see that in the scripture. It's based on a proper accounting of these things. And it's important to get a proper accounting. There's many people, we live week to week trying to understand how we're going to be living our lives. A lot of people play Tats Lotto. Seen them play Tats Lotto? They're giving a proper accounting of whether they're actually going to win Tats Lotto. We're hoping for that particular win, but is that based on reckoning something is true? Have we reckoned that is true? There's one guy that once said um, Tats Lotto is a tax on people that can't do math. I like that and I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. But this is based on a proper accounting. It's based on making sure that we're understanding where that goes from. So that's what Paul's referring to when he's speaking about, um, about reckoning. Turns up again in Leviticus 27. Um, 18, here the word reckon is used twice. It again refers to deduction based on coming to a total account of something. The priest was to conclude to a given sum. There's another one. Another interesting area here. When you're trying to define a word, sometimes it's good to have a look at how it's used in opposition. So, when you're looking at an opposition, in Numbers 23, you've got, um, you've got that section where Balak is asking Balaam to curse the Israelites. 23 verses 7 to 10. Here it's used differently. It's, used, it's exactly the same meaning, but it's used the other way. He says, and he took up his parable. So this is Balaam now. And he said, and said, Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? From the top of the rocks I see him, speaking about Jacob, and from the hills, the same person, I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. So this is based again on something that's accounted. So this particular verse that we're looking at back in Romans chapter 8 is based on Paul coming to this total conclusion. And the conclusion is that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Our next question is what sort of sufferings? So back to Romans chapter 8. I told you guys to put your finger in it and I didn't. Here we go. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's important to understand these particular sufferings. Everything within the world is suffering, the suffering of the world. So there's a relationship between the sufferings and the glory that shall be revealed in us. This world's got a lot of sufferings in it. We look at health, we look at our health and how that is affected by suffering in one way or another. It's almost limitless. Injury, constant pain that people have got to endure day by day. Whether it's a nerve in your back, whether it's neck pain, arthritis, migraine, kidney stones, the list can go on. Terminal illness and diseases, cancer and other diseases, often both the sufferers and carers suffer with. These have also got a, a, a 
endless list of painful disorders. Those who suffer with mental disorders of some kind, and the list of that would be, would be huge. We look at natural disasters that go on in this world and we've got the same, the same things happening here. We've got fires, tornadoes, cyclones, people suffering through that, earthquakes, tidal waves, landslides, flooding, drought, hail, storms of all kinds. We've got war and conflict. There was a guy that actually put something on the... Um, uh, that I was looking on the net. You've heard it said that the 20th century was the bloodiest, bloodiest century in history. There's been more than 105 wars during this time, and that includes the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the wars in the Balkans, and so on and so forth. More than 160 million people died during that particular time. There's a lot of people that suffered. The families of those people also suffered in different ways. We're looking here at a scripture that actually says and compares the sufferings with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And what we're trying to compare and understand is why there's all these sufferings that actually go on in the world and is there a glory there at the end for these people? We'll come to a conclusion of that in a minute. There's other suffering that actually happens and it's usually the result of sin. We look at murders and robberies we look at people that have been abused in so many different ways. The government's always trying to lift up speeding fines and the like to make sure that other people aren't suffered because people are speeding in their cars, drink driving and so on because it affects families. We see that all the time. So we see constant suffering is going on within this world and it's plural. There's a whole bunch of different types. So we've got those particular killings. We've got the silent killings. Over 50,000 children every year in this country alone are aborted. I reckon around about 2 million children a year worldwide. That actually happens too. But it's not just the suffering there. It's the suffering of the people that actually do that later on. They have clinics set up for people to be able to deal with this. This isn't just a simple procedure this is the ending of a human life and deep down inside we know that that's true so there's people that are also suffering with that Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us is this the same sort of suffering that Paul is referring to here so many others robbery, rape, fraud, abuse in all forms against the victims suffering of children as a result of divorce Sufferings of those who go through divorce. Sufferings of poverty, hard luck. Sufferings that stem from accidents, whether in leisure or play or work or travel. There's a lot of innocent people, it seems, that actually suffer. Sufferings of addictions, everything's from drugs to sex to gambling to kleptomania. The sufferings that stem from anxiety and fear, loneliness and heartache. There's, there's an amazing amount of sufferings that are actually going on in this world. But is that sufferings that Paul's referring to that leads to glory in some form or in this particular case? Even though this list is long, I don't believe I've even come close to exhausting the many ways a person suffers in this world. There's tremendous sufferings within this world, but the verse we're speaking of is that which is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. You see, there's two types of sufferings. And as I alluded to in the introduction, there's ones 
that actually lead to God and there's a sort of suffering that leads away from God. And a perfect example is found in the Old Testament. You have a look at how Israel lived their lives, how they continued to suffer while they were away from God. They were defying God, they were following idols, they were believing in all these other things and yet God was stretching his hand out upon them, trying to chastise them and hope that he'll bring them back to himself. Interesting quote by C.S. Lewis, he says that pain is God's megaphone in a deaf world. And we are indeed a deaf world, we're not hearing God clearly. We've got the option to come to him and he calls us through sufferings a lot of the time. So the sufferings of this world has only one of two effects and we see it continuously. Scripture says, with God's working within for Israel to bring them to him, in Isaiah 30 verse 1 he says, Woe to the rebellious children, that saith the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, that cover with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. When we don't come to the Lord with our sufferings, then we're just going to continue to perpetuate the same thing again. People in this world are looking for other ways of being able to sort of get past that suffering that they're going through. Other counsellors is what they look for, and God's talking about it here, that they should be coming to me. They don't come to the Lord with a broken and contrite heart. The Bible says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. There's all these different counsellors that we look to. The Bible again addresses this in Isaiah 47. He says, Thou art weary, wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Speaking of us, we're wearied in the multitude of our counsels. Let now the astrologers, this is his commandment to us, he's basically saying this to us, let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, you ever going through those magazines with the little star signs, the horoscopes, this is the sort of life we're going to have, this is the sort of day that we're going to have. My mum used to be into the, um, the tarot cards and in order to give herself comfort, she'd stick one on her fridge every morning anticipating that was the sort of day that she was going to have. That was her counsellor. That was her counsellor. We've got a God out there with stretched out arms asking us to come to him. And yet we, we, we go to cards. We flick through magazines. We do all these things but not come to God, not come to the Lord for everything that we need. So we profane God not only with our words but also with our deeds. Rather than seeking after God, they look to others for counsel. They look to the stars, to the diviners. It's tragic. So the sufferings of Israel, the greatest example of how God uses suffering to force decision is found in the Old Testament. Paul tells us that whatever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. A lot of Old Testament examples is the cry of Israel while they were in Egypt. God heard their cry. Moses was the prophet that was then sent unto them. 
Another example of somebody going in the opposite direction was Pharaoh hardening his heart. There was a lot that was going on within his land. He sent the ten plagues into this land, but he hardened his heart. Rather than turning to God, he hardened his heart. So that's a real distinction of how we can actually um, move in one of those two directions. Suffering for glory. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. The Bible says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The suffering here is related to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, he says that he was a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. And it was a perfect example of one that actually came from God to bring the message of God to a deaf world. As God's desire was that all men would be saved. All men weren't saved. They're not going to be saved. But the Lord Jesus Christ was sent to bring that message into this world. Jesus in Luke 24. If you turn your Bibles to Luke 24. Jesus was rebuking the Jews, the Pharisees at that particular time. Remember what God's doing right through history. Whether it's through suffering or through the prophets... He's trying to bring his word to the people. The whole work is in order to, for people to be saved. But there are people that constantly stand in the way of this message. And Jesus himself looks to the Pharisees there. And he says in verse 25, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And to enter into his glory. Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong one. That wasn't the one that I was thinking of. This is relating particularly to Christ's suffering. This is related to Christ's suffering. My apologies. I've jumped ahead of myself. This is speaking about, um, about the Lord's suffering. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expanded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Peter in his gospel message of Acts chapter 3 acknowledges but those things which God before had shewed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Paul also said the same thing regarding our Lord Jesus Christ, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And again he says that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead in Acts 26, 23. The context of the type of sufferings are found in the following verses in Romans 8. We go back to Romans 8. And verse 19. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, 
but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. One of the sufferings that we actually go through is that we live in this present world. We live in a present state, but we're desiring home. We're desiring the redemption of our bodies, but it's not only us. The text is also referring to the entire creation groaneth and travaileth together until now. So there is a suffering that Paul is referring to here that identifies a child of God. The child of God, one that is born again, one that is saved, has a suffering within himself desiring glory. And that is the suffering that he's going to lead unto glory. And that's one of the sufferings that Christ went through also. So there, Paul also talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks... He's just finished talking about our light affliction. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Where are we? No, that's 2 Corinthians, sorry. He says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, an house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked, for this, for we are, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan. Tabernacle meaning our own bodies, the, the current state that we're in. Being burdened not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that morality, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Paul talks about it again in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There is a change that we yearn for within ourselves. All those who are born again have a yearning for heaven and remain absent from heaven and while remaining absent from heaven we suffer Paul talks about it again in Philippians chapter 1 23 to 24 he says for I'm in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better if you're a Christian you recognize what I'm speaking about if you have this yearning and feeling of hope and sickness that you may not be able to place but know it's a desire for heaven even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to with the redemption of our body the Bible also talks about the suffering of the gospel for the gospel. Our Lord suffered for a purpose. He came to save that which was lost. 
For the purpose of the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. God's will is for all men to be saved, but all men do not receive this message. So as a result, what we've got is two forms of suffering. We've got a suffering that has a desire for heaven, and we've also got a suffering during this, uh, for the preaching of the gospel. This has happened right through history. Men have tried to preach the gospel to a deaf world. Men have tried to preach, but people will not hear. And as a result, they've suffered for the sake of the gospel. One of the combinations of this is actually found, one of the best um, summaries of this is found in Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 speaks exactly about... Remember Hebrews chapter 11, you've got the, the chapter of faith, with all these great men of faith. Verse 32 starts off with, What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is a persecution that happened from the Old Testament times and it continues on. Our Lord came in, this was the bit that I was looking for before, when he came against the... Um, when he came against the, uh, the prophets. No, this isn't it. This is another part. Sorry again. Our first martyr, Stephen spoke out and said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which shewed before the coming of the Just One, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Right through history we find people persecuted just trying to bring the gospel to people to save souls. And we see that play out in real-time history. The persecutions of, of Nero in 67 AD, setting the Roman capital on fire, blaming that on the Christians, and we've got a persecution coming through from there. We've got Domitian in AD 81, according to John Fox, that also did the same thing. There was a continuous persecution, Trajan in AD 108. The interesting thing with Trajan in 108 was a particular historian that was trying to actually defend the Christians and what they were doing. He wrote a letter unto Trajan. And he said, The whole account that they gave of their crime or error, whichever it is to be called, amounted only to this, that they were accustomed on a stated day to meet before daylight and to repeat together a set form of prayer to Christ as a God. So this is a secular historian writing this, and he's writing this to Trajan, who was, who was persecuting thousands of people.
It says, they themselves buy an oblation, not indeed to commit wickedness, but on the contrary, never to commit theft, robbery or adultery, never to falsify their word, never to defraud any man. After which it was their custom to separate and reassemble to partake in a common, in common of a harmless meal. Speaking about the Lord's Supper. Isn't that incredible? We've got an ancient historian trying to defend Christians who were going through incredible persecution under Trajan at that time. And it continued on. We've got Marcus Aurelius in 162, Severus in 192, Maximus in 235, Decius in 249, Valerian in 257. Of him it said, The martyrs that fell in this persecution were innumerable, and their tortures and deaths as various and painful. The most eminent martyrs were the following, though neither rank, sex, nor age were regarded. And I won't go through the the following. Diocletian in 303 also had the persecution that came through. Not long after Diocletian, we've got Constantine that came up. And just before Constantine, there was an institution of, um, well, tolerance to a certain degree. And the persecutions against Christians were lifted at that particular time. The gospel then had free reign. It had an incredible reign at that particular point, bringing the word of God to thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people, the world over, until we get to the papal kingdoms. It wasn't going to be long before all of a sudden papal authority was going to have their say in what to do, being threatened in one way. Pope Alexander III at that particular time, commanding the Bishop of Lyons to excommunicate Waldo. Waldo and his group, the Waldensians, were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted in the Bible and the Word of God. And they would preach the Gospel unhindered and bravely. Pope Alexander commanded the Bishop to exterminate them. If possible, from the face of the earth, then began the papal persecutions against the Waldensians. Pope Innocent III was the one that, that we understand began the inquisitions against Christians. One of the worst singular attacks against the preaching of the gospel came on the 22nd day of August 1572 where one pope in one week killed more Christians than all the emperors together. It's known as the Bartholomew Massacre in Paris. It was said that the bodies were thrown into the rivers and blood ran through the streets with a strong current The river appeared presently like a stream of blood. So furious was their hellish rage that they slew all papists who they suspected to be not very staunch to their diabolical religion. From Paris, the destruction spread to all quarters of the realm. The reports were anywhere between 30 to 70,000 people were slain for their faith during that time. The slaughter of the innocents continued through all the years. All people that are willing to preach the gospel for the sake of Christ has met at one time or another persecution of some kind. And it continues today in different parts of the world. David mentioned something before. He was talking about the persecutions that actually still occur today. There's a, um, there's a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs. These people bring the information of what's actually going on in the world to the common people or to anybody that would subscribe to their magazine. They estimate there's anywhere between 150 to 200,000 Christians every single year persecuted or killed for their faith. It still happens today. 
doesn't happen so much in our country, not at this level. I wonder why. Are we fervent with preaching the gospel? Are we passionate with teaching the truth? Are we obeying the Lord to actually bring that gospel to the people that are outside the walls of the church? Or are we just comfortable? We don't go through that persecution here. Some small ways we might. There's a guy over in the US that there's a current court case about. All he did was share a video on intelligent design to some of his colleagues and all of a sudden was demoted. Interesting, isn't it? They get persecuted in a different sort of way. The Bible says that all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We suffer in persecution. Is this the suffering that we're actually going through? Are we going through the sort of suffering that Paul's referring to here in Romans 8? That that's not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us? Or are we suffering because of our own evil or because of our own stupid mistakes? Which one are you suffering with? There's people that have said you're either suffering, going through suffering, or either come through suffering, going through suffering, or about to go through suffering. You know? So there's not a time where we're not going through something or some form of difficulty in one form or another. But this one that the Bible is speaking about is one that leads to glory. So you've got two of them. You've got a suffering for righteousness sake, which is a suffering of within ourselves, a desire and a yearning to be right with God, which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. Or you've got the suffering for the sake of the gospel. See, every time you stand out, Every time you stand out and say, not only that I'm a Christian, but I believe this is the right way to live and this is the wrong way to live, do you know you don't even have to say anything? All you have to do is stand apart. People that are drinking in a pub and stuff like that, all of a sudden you start downing some orange juices, they're going to be looking at you. You know? Not swearing. You ever notice this? I don't know if you guys see this. When you're in a work environment and you don't swear, how do other people react? Do you ever notice that they seem to curb their tongue as well a little bit? I'm in the construction industry, okay? And I used to swear like a trooper without a problem. I don't anymore. The guys that work for me, every time they go to swear, I can almost see them and using another word. See, you can actually speak good English and not swear but that's a righteous stand but the problem is that other people are offended by that because by you taking that stand you're actually and you don't even have to say anything audibly by you taking that stand other people are recognizing a judgment all of a sudden they accuse you of judging and you don't utter a word you're just trying to live a godly life so that's one form of suffering that we go through. We go through those sort of persecutions, trying to live godly in the Lord. And that's one of those sufferings that actually lead to glory, or that's not worthy to be compared to the glory. The link is there. There is a suffering that is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. The other is the gospel. And the gospel one is a lot more fervent. And we've just seen throughout history that when the gospel is preached, men are persecuted often unto death. People don't like to hear the gospel. Most people don't. But God has set forth the gospel as his means of salvation and bringing the truth to many. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the first fruits of that glory. 
See, he's the one that's completely glorified. And we get to share in that glory. And that's that hope of glory. I don't have time to speak about but he is the very first fruits. He's the one that suffered to the nth degree. We'll close with this scripture. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. See, Peter's, Peter might be talking about a different church than ours. I hope not. I hope he's talking about a church just like ours. But there's very, very few churches that would receive this letter and understand exactly what Peter is talking about because of the experience that they're going through. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be just looking at verses 12 to 18. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Do you recognise there the suffering that I was speaking about that doesn't lead to that glory that we mentioned? There is a suffering for evildoing. Verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Let's pray. Father God, your word tells us, dear Father, that your words will not ever return to you void. And Father, I praise you for that. For I know that your words need to do their work. And the words of Scripture are the only words that can do their work within our lives. I pray, dear Lord, that these Scriptures will find their seed deep down within our own hearts. That we will be willing to suffer as Christ did. That we will be willing to obey the word to obey the law, to trust in you, but also to share that wonderful gospel. And Father, if there be any here within this church today that are not suffering in a particular way with respect to just even living a righteous life, dear Lord, before you, if they don't have that inner struggle, Father, I pray, dear God, please, convict their hearts, have them know exactly where they stand and and have them know their need for you that you await for them, dear Lord, and there is abundant mercy found at the foot of the cross.
Father, help us not trust in our own selves, but to trust in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, for all things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.